Hey everybody, this is Heath Wiggins, the host of The Crux Capacitor. I wanted to bring you a really quick PSA before we uh, um, start right into our episode here with special guest Rabbi Baruch DeBrow. Well, the PSA is basically that this episode, hmm, the sound is only so-so. Sometimes uh, Rabbi is a little distorted, but I hope that you'll be patient with me because I'm learning as I go. And I'm upgrading sound quality as much as possible as I get the opportunity to do so. All right, well, stay tuned for more from the Crux Capacitor. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this uh, podcast of The Crux Capacitor. I'm your host, Heath Wiggins, and I am happy to be back on Anchor FM this morning. And uh, I have a guest today. I've really been looking forward for a few weeks now, actually, to having this guest on our uh, podcast to talk to you about a couple different, um, I guess, current issues, as well as um, some of the things that he brings to the table. I have... And I'm going to, I know, I, I'm afraid I'm going to butcher it as it is here, but I have Rabbi Baruch Debru, Debro. How do you say that? <laughs> that was good. It was Rabbi Baruch Dubrow, yeah. Dubrow. There we go. I knew I was going to, I knew I was going to butcher it. And, uh, and of course my notes are pl- playing hooky here on the uh, computer in front of me. So we, when we were having our pre podcast, uh, conversation, um, one of the things that we were talking about and your kind of what you call your day job role is is that you have had some core values that have really kind of intersected with real life for you. And what those have done is allowed you to kind of um, sharpen your skills for the lack of a better way to put it, kind of hone in on an area of your life that you really are wanting to project out there. And so your day job is a teacher. Um, and you, one of the things that you've mentioned here though, is you work with misunderstood students, but also at the same time, one of the things you've said is that when you're working with these misunderstood students, you actually keep a core value kind of forefront for you of being coachable, being hungry, uh, to learn and things like that. How do, how did those core values intersect for you? How did they come how did they sharpen in your day-to-day existence? Right. So, um, I actually got my start off with teaching um, many years ago when I was 14 years old my first experience was working at a day camp where they essentially created a position for me because they were doing me a favor okay the position they gave me was being the counselor of 10 kids that none of the other counselors could handle and not even the head counselor could handle wow um, these were kids who had been labeled as poorly behaved, bad behaved kids, bad kids. And I started off with that. And the one thing that I saw that they had was that they always wanted to do more. They always wanted to learn more and they always wanted to do better. And therefore, when I was giving them input and and guidance as far as their behavior, as far as their learning or whatever it may have been, they were eating it up. They were listening and they, they were implementing what I was saying. So they were hungry to get more. Mm-hmm. They wanted to be better, um, and they were also coachable in the sense that when I was giving them 
guidance or corrections, as they call them, on their behavior or on what was going on, they would actually listen and implement it. And we're talking about kids who were um, anywhere between five to ten years old. Wow. And then as I went on through my teaching experience, you know, I worked as a special ed private tutor. I worked to help open up a Jewish Montessori school as well. Um, all the way up through a couple of years ago, I was working with a boy who I was actually brought in to work with him as a para to pretty much make sure he would stop beating kids up. He was a kid who you looked at him the wrong way and he would just beat a kid up. Um, so I was brought in to stop the fights. Mm. What I ended up doing with him was because I saw that there was more to him, I got him to the point where he went from beating kids up for them looking at him the wrong way to if somebody took something from him that he was playing with, he would use his words and ask them nicely to give it back. And that's all because he was hungry. He wanted to be better. He knew that there was something more that he needed to be doing, but nobody was able to speak his language. And then he was coachable in the sense that when I gave him corrections and I spoke to him at a level, he listened to what I was saying and then he implemented it. And now, um, you know, I'm working as a regular teacher in a day school, but it's a day school where um, a lot of the kids are coming from very difficult backgrounds. And this class in particular this past year that I've been working with, there's like a trail of destruction um, mm -hmm. that they have left behind because for whatever reason, this group of kids have just been particularly difficult. Um, and the key thing that I found is, you know, you really just have to understand them, where they're coming from, um, and, and work with them at their level. So, again, once again, they were hungry in the sense that they knew that what they left behind is not what they wanted, and they were hungry for the attention. They were hungry for um, really the parenting they want. They needed to have somebody who was going to listen to them who wasn't going to let them get away with the things they've been getting away with up until now, um, and they wanted more out of it. So therefore, when they came into the class with that, and it took me a while to learn it, um, but then I was able to go and turn around and be a better teacher and not just teach them material, but teach them lessons in life and teach them how to navigate through life. Um, and they showed that they were coachable by being able to take what I was saying um, and apply it in their own way. So every kid, um, you know, had to take what I was saying and use it, implement it from what they understood. Right, right. So, you know, I mean, that sounds like a, a whole progressive relationship with yourself there as you were going, okay, I see needs. How am I going to meet these needs? How am I going to approach my life? Because this obviously is something that stirred a passion with inside of you. Do you think that that opportunity, going back to the 14-year-old uh, counselor position, do you think that that activity there influenced your um, decision to go into teaching? Uh, so the funny thing is, I always swore I would never go into teaching. Um, I had had such a horrible experience going through school myself um, because most of the teachers that I had experienced and I had been under did not know how to teach me and coach me in my way. Um, so the being a counselor at 14 years old, I was, that was like the first kind of exposure to it. But the thing that really um, convinced me was when I was in ninth grade, um, I was not, growing up as a student, I was all over the place. I could not sit still. I was bouncing off the walls. Um, mm -hmm. There was one teacher in particular who, when I was in ninth grade, um, I was sitting at a desk where the desk was attached to the chair and it just, I was, I'm a big guy, you know, I'm six one, 
even back then I was tall and I couldn't fit into this cramped desk. So what I did is um, we were learning Talmud at the time, which was a big, hefty volume. Um, and I couldn't sit in the desk, so I got up, I took my Talmud with me, I sat down on the floor and put my back against the wall, and I put my Talmud on my lap, and I was more comfortable that way. My teacher stops teaching, and he stares at me, and this is one of those old sagely rabbis who <laughs> you know, was very stern. He was very serious about his learning and about his teaching, and you know, if you're disturbing, he would give you a look, and that was it, like, wrong. He right. stops teaching, and he looks at me, and he gives me this look. And then he goes over to, to me, he takes the Talmud out of my lap, puts it on the seat of the attached desk, and he brings the whole thing over to me. He uh, taps the Talmud and says, now you can learn properly. He smiles, and he goes back to teaching. And that was what was really the, the changing experience for me with my, with my understanding of what teaching and education was really all about. Because I saw that education wasn't just imparting information, but it was really connecting with the students and the students' needs and helping them to learn in their way. In, in Judaism, we have a saying that in Hebrew goes, which what it means is you have to educate the child according to their way. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what this teacher did. He found the way that I needed to learn, and he taught me in that manner. And that's something I've then taken and implemented, um, or at least tried to implement going forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. I'd, I had actually heard that saying before that you just said about teaching it. Um, and because, of course, in my position, I've done a lot of study as well with <laughs> different historical um you know, applications of different um, Jewish uh, heritage, faith, and practices. Um, and so I, I, I find that to be one that I really wish we hadn't lost. It seems that we in the Judeo-Christian society might have at one point embraced that, but it seems now that we are, we are just simply are um, not, we're, we want to standardize it more than we want to individualize it. And at some point it has to go back to the individual way of learning and, and of course, we understand too, I think, at least from my perspective, it, you know, the parents have to be involved in this learning process for the child and, and help that child learn, as you just said, in their own way. So that's very, very interesting. I, I think there's a great segue here then for this. And when we come back, I will have you talk more about this. You actually do consulting on the side now as well, but it kind of grew out of the needs that you saw um, in the um, educational system, as it were, and the needs that you see for people to have basic life skills and teaching people how they learn themselves. Um, so I appreciate you being here, and um, we'll be right back with more from Rabbi Brock DeBrow. Thank you for uh, being with us, everybody. Hey, listeners, are you newly engaged and looking for the perfect wedding officiant? Well, you've literally been listening to him for the last few minutes. That's right. Heath, the host of the Crux Capacitor, is a licensed and ordained minister that performs weddings in the Charlotte, North Carolina metro area. Go to nuptiallyyours.com or call 614-561-9681. That's nuptiallyyours.com or 614-561-9681 for more information. Let Nuptially Yours and Heath make sure you're nuptially ready for your big day. 
Well, welcome back, everybody, to the Crux Capacitor. I am Heath Wiggins, and today is Rabbi Baruch Dural. Um, one of the things that we were talking about before the break was we were talking about um, seeing needs and seeing how that they need to be met differently. Um, and so now, on top of your teaching, you've actually taken this a step further, and you are consulting and one of the ways you're consulting is actually, as you were saying, kind of counseling, sort of life skills, sort of um, individual needs, as it were. How did you start seeing the need for the position that you've created on the side? Sure. So the, the idea of being coached or having a mentor is actually something that as well that we have from our teachings um, I'm part of the Chabad sect of Judaism, and the head rabbi of Chabad, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, actually was very big on people having, as we call it in Hebrew, a mashpia, um, which translates into a mentor, somebody who can help guide you in life, somebody that you can turn to to get the advice that you need. Now, ideally, a teacher should be that. Now, if you go back um, to the old country and to the ways it used to be, we, we spoke about a little bit last time, where the way we teach now is, as we call it, talk and shock. There's a teacher stands at the front of the room, he says a bunch of words, and he writes it on the board. Mm -hmm. Teaching did not used to be like that. It used to be very individualized. One teacher with five students, and it didn't go according to age. It went according to level. Um, so coupling that with the idea of having a mentor, as I was going through school, you know, from pre-1A all the way through high school and then rabbinical school, I was very different than everybody else. Um, I had transitioned from different types of Jewish schools into other schools, from, from less religious to more religious. And pretty much in every single one, I saw that the teachers were doing talk and chalk. They were just imparting information, and it was very standardized. Um, so I didn't learn the way other kids learned as well. I mean, an example for my family, my brother was getting horrible grades in math, um, yet now he uh, runs a investment company where he deals with millions of dollars a day and he's constantly doing math in his head mm -hmm. because he's a very hands-on learner. Um, for myself, it was the same thing. I had a different way of learning than the teachers were teaching. But I also noticed that essentially what was happening is they were putting books in front of us and saying, learn, right. and then take a test. But nobody ever taught us how to learn. Nobody ever gave us the skill to learn. But then also, you know, being part of the Chabad sect of Judaism, one of the things that we do is on Fridays we go out, we find non-religious Jews, and we ask them if they want to put on tefillin, which are translated as phylacteries, but they're Jewish prayer boxes. And the thing is, most people don't like to be approached, asked if they're Jewish, mm -hmm. and then immediately asked to do some religious thing. So... To me, it didn't make sense. And there's a lot of these things going on that I'm very proud about within Judaism. But I saw that we weren't being taught the relational skills, not only how to relate with other people, random people on the street, but even amongst ourselves and even with ourselves. Um, and as I went on and as I got older and I had to start experiencing more and more aspects of life, I saw that within the education system as a whole, there was information missing about how to have proper relationships. Um, nobody was teaching us about finance and budgeting. Um, and ironically enough, though I'm Jewish and a religious Jew, most 
schools do not actually teach how to connect with God or how to connect with whatever um, spiritual element you want to connect with. Mm -hmm. So this was all things that I saw was missing, and I confirmed it with a bunch of my friends and a bunch of people that I had spoken to. And from there I devised um, kind of a, a curriculum or what to work off of to then turn around and be able to give back um, how to have proper relationships, how to connect spiritually in your own way. Um, and I spoke to a lot of experts in the field. I spoke to marriage family therapists and counselors. I spoke to rabbis. I listened to as many classes as I could. Um, and I just got as much information as I could. And now I'm trying to just turn around and give that back because it's not being taught in schools, but it's so integral and important for life to be able to be successful in life. Right, right. So, but when you do these things now, you were talking to me a little bit uh, before we started recording about networking and how just your approach period to networking, which is a very refreshing approach and one I try to embody myself, is you're not going into the room looking to sell but looking to give, and there's a big difference there. You're not looking to have an exchange where they have to give you something first and then you give it, then you give it in exchange. Uh, there's this whole, how am I going to enrich um, other people's lives through being here in this particular place at this particular time? Are you finding, um, are you finding a need in a per, a, per, a particular group of people? I mean, we talk about millennials, we talk about Generation X, etc. Are you seeing a group of individuals that fit that kind of where you need to focus on with your consulting? Uh, definitely. Um, I'm finding that, and I don't know what the turnout is. I don't know if it's millennials or Generation X. I just read up that there's actually a difference. Um, but our generation now, the younger generation, is very into pursuing a life that they are happy with right. living, that they feel is meaningful. Now, it didn't used to be like that. You know, when my uh, great-grandparents came over from Europe, they literally went into whatever job would make enough money to support the family. Right. My grandparents also had that same work ethic, where they're going to do whatever they need to do. My father's generation started to change a little bit. They also wanted to have some uh, meaning to it. Um, now, my generation they're very into like no whatever we're doing it has to be meaningful it has to have a purpose so i'm working primarily with the people who are looking for that purpose looking to make an impact um in the world but in order to make an impact in the world you have to impact your own world first you have to know who you are what you're doing what you're capable of what you're good at and you need to be set in your solid foundation in order to go around and then be able to help and impact the world and i think once more people have identified who they are and how they function and what they want then they can go and turn around and impact the world in a positive manner so it's a lot of people either coming out of college or just starting off in in the work environment but what i'm also before that i'm trying to start with young adults who are finishing up high school because mm -hmm. you go into college knowing what you want to do, knowing what you want to accomplish, and then you'll have a much more enjoyable college and university experience. Right. Um, but again, the people that I'm primarily working with are those who feel that there's more to life than just getting a career and, and just working a nine to five, which obviously there's nothing wrong with that. That's what some people want. 
but I'm, I'm working specifically with people who want more out of life and, and they want to do more and impact more people. Mm. So your work, you're working with people that want to be world changers. In other words, they they want to embody a core value to the point where it's not just something that's a personal thing that they hopefully can implement implement somewhere in their lives. They're wanting to take that core value and make it how they actually work with. Period. It's their expression. Right. Yeah. Hundred percent. And that's the thing with me is I was never. I could never be a selfish person. Um, like when I was actually learning to become a coach and then learning the, the business end of it, it was all about sell, sell, sell. Listen to the person, what are their pain points? What What is the one thing that's really tearing them up? And then use that to sell them your coaching package. And that just never sat right with me because I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to trick people into buying my services. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to connect with people, build a relationship with people um, learn how can I help them and if they want my help then be there for them every single step of the way so I will add value to somebody even before they find up as a client because therefore if I can impact their world uh, again another saying from Judaism you change one person you change the world right so every individual is a world um, I, my idea my role my mission is to impact one person mm -hmm. so that one person can change their world and then turn around and change another person's world yeah so i was a networking meeting speaking of networking i was on a networking meeting this morning and i actually run this networking meeting and we have been focusing on the f core values for the first half of the year and of course that's been my kind of continuing theme and is the theme of this podcast but through that process interestingly enough i asked them um you know to identify core values in themselves but then also identify core values in other people uh, in the room. And then at the very last, before I dismissed everybody, I kind of just was able to um, go through the room and talk to people and say, you know, when I am dealing with you or when I have interactions with you, these are the core values that I get to see. And it becomes this very positive thing. So not only are you equipping people, but by equipping people, you're enabling them. There's a difference between being equipped and being enabled. Some people have the equipment, but then don't have, know how to go from, oh, now I've got to go on, you know, I started at A, now I've got to go on to B. Um, and a lot of people don't know how to do that. But I think what you really are focusing on is the ability to take people and go, you know what, you are naturally equipped with these things. Now let's enable you to use that equipment properly. Right, and that's actually a discussion I have with somebody recently. Um, is that, you know, they ask, well, do you, in order to be a life coach, do you, do you, is passion enough? Or, you know, do you actually have to have, so actually maybe this was, a, you, you mentioned this. <laughs> uh, but I was having a conversation with somebody else as well, the idea that you have to have the skills, but you also have to have the passion. Right. Um, and that's with anything in life, is that it's not enough to know that you're good at something if you don't know how to use that which you're good at. Um, so, you know, what I try to do. I'm not trying to convince somebody to do something. Um, I'm trying to find what, what are they doing and or what are they good at and, and how can they do it even better and how can they use it and implement it. Absolutely. Well, you've been listening, everybody, to the Crux Capacitor. My guest today has been Rabbi Baruch Debral. Um, Rabbi Baruch, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. 
Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. Um, please stay tuned, everybody, for more from the Crux Capacitor and uh, another recording by Rabbi Baruch and myself on current events. Please stay tuned. Thanks. Hey, everybody. This is Heath, the host of the Crux Capacitor, and I just want to say really quickly, thank you for listening today. I appreciate your patience again as we talk about the sound, but I have something exciting to talk about really quickly. So there's a total revamping coming to HeathWiggins.com. That's right, my own personal website, HeathWiggins.com. It's being revamped and being re-released soon with lots of great products and blog entries and general announcements, ways to stay in touch, ways to stay up to date on what's going on at the Crux Capacitor. So please stay tuned for more from HeathWiggins.com. And now, back to our episode. Welcome back, everybody. This is Heath Wiggins with the Crux Capacitor, and this is a um, current event segment. Now, my guest today is Rabbi Baruch Debrow, and we have been talking before about mentoring and um, doing some coaching through his, as it were, life skills, not just life skills as in we think of, you know, day-to-day -day life skills of accounting and things like that. And maybe that is a portion of it, but we're talking also about how people uh, mentally process, emotionally process, um, how people are process processing their kind of hard story in their spiritual lives as well. And so that brings us kind of full circle to the current event that I want to talk about. And the current event is talking about the children at the border being separated from their families. All social justice aside from this, um, one of the things that's been a really um, kind of tug at my heartstrings uh, and very um, sobering thought for me has been that they're surely through this process of these children being separated from their families, their loved ones, their moms and dads, that at some point this is going to very profoundly um, affect them socially, mentally and emotionally. Now, from your point of view, um, Rabbi, do you feel, have you seen in your personal experience that this is just a setup for something in the future? Right. So because I've been involved with education um, for the last 10 years and the students and the children that I've been working with primarily are children coming from broken homes, whether it's divorce or death or, um, or even in the case where they have to be taken away, um, I've had to see the effects that it has on children. And I've noticed that those children that either are separated from their parents or they don't have their parents in their lives um, because their parents, you know, are, are working, both parents are working all day, every day. So they're growing up being raised by their older siblings or they're growing up with their grandparents. And even then they still have family ties. But because they don't have the direct influence of their parents, um, it takes an immense uh, emotional toll on them, a uh, mental toll. And it really, especially in the last couple of years, I've seen that the kids don't have a drive to do anything. So then mm -hmm. to be in a situation where you're coming to a foreign country where you anyways don't fit in, you don't speak the language, um, you don't know what's what, and then you're being pulled away from your family and being put into another family or into another society where you don't know anybody, anything, it is no doubt it's going to take uh, 
a toll on them as far as you know emotional and mental status, but also I'm sure just within growth. Now, one of two things is going to happen: either the the child is going to be so determined and motivated um, that they're going to work extremely hard on their own mm-hmm. to become who they need to become. Um, or it could probably lead to a point where they're just going to give up uh, and give in, and, and you know who knows what could happen. I and mean, it really all depends on who the child is, what their upbringing had been up until that point, and what elements they're in now. I mean, I was I've been reading a great book called uh, What to Say When You Talk to Yourself by Shad Helmstetter, and it's all about a programming that we receive as we're growing up. So. Imagine a, a, an American child in an American home living with his parents. Um, and I believe in the book he says something like, by the time you're 12 years old, you've heard the word no like uh, 300,000 times. Something <laughs> like that. I'm not 100% sure what the number is. Yeah. Um, and how that already programs us. So imagine somebody who doesn't speak the language, so therefore they're reading only the body language, um, they're reading only the emotions of the people around them and whatever frustration they might have from not being able to communicate. How much more so is that going to program this child who's been pulled away from the parents to believe whatever beliefs they think they need to believe as far as themselves that maybe they're not worthy, maybe they're not good enough, maybe they can't accomplish. Um, so it is, a, it is a bit of a, you know, it's disheartening to hear that what's going on and it is it's something that needs to be thought about um, immensely and, and what are we going to do here on out to make sure that things change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I was listening to NPR yesterday, and one of the um, one of the segments was on the very fact that this doctor had been treating some of these um, children that had been being separated. And amazingly enough, she's in Colorado, so that's quite a distance that these children have traveled in order to uh, find a foster situation. But their foster um, mother was bringing them in, and in one particular case, I mean the child was so traumatized that she wasn't even able to put her down. I mean, this child clung to her to the point where the child, the child couldn't even go to the bathroom without, you know, the mother being there and the, and, or, you know, wouldn't take baths or anything like that because of the trauma that was associated with that. Do you feel that, um, these people when they are with the children especially i mean we know it's such a traumatic event and we know it's so impactful because so many of these children that we're seeing here are they're not 10 12 13 years old so many of them are the three four five year olds or even less than that Uh, we're talking about kids being equipped naturally but this in my opinion seems to be something that would break their equipment Right, and again, because it's, it's starting at such a young age, so we don't know what they've grown up with up to this point. Mm-hmm. But even so, at a young age, three, four, five, to then be ripped from your home and have to learn everything anew, it is most definitely going to have an impact on how they're able to function and then how they're able to cope. And, you know, again, like, like in the case that you mentioned, she, this child wouldn't even be able to be put down. Right. Um, it's because... What, what happens the next time that I'll put down? Yes. Um, and it's most definitely going to have an impact and effect on them because while they've had very little time to be programmed negatively, 
Mm-hmm. They've also had very little to program time to be programmed positively. Right. Um, I don't think most of these kids have the ability to understand to be strong and young and independent and and to know who you are. Like that's not something we learn until later on, and even later on we don't learn it. Um, so it's possible that going forward, if they're in a really good home that can really tend to their needs and really build them as strong individuals, mm-hmm. that it's very possible that they will be able to integrate properly and will be able to lead successful lives. Um, but that would have to be done with immense amount of counseling and therapy to deal with this traumatic experience at such a young age. I mean, I have a son now who's uh, two years and seven months old, uh, and every day when I leave to work, no matter how much I shower him in hugs and kisses, when I close the door, he's still shrieking and crying and mm-hmm. screaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I get home, it's like all it's like it's the greatest gift that he's ever received. Right. And it's, as a father, it's, it's amazing to see that. You know, it's, it's a wonderful to be able to come home to that. Right. But to think on the flip end that if God forbid something happened to my kids where, where they were separated, right. You know, who knows what would happen? And my son doesn't really have the full capacity to understand. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he knows that there's something going on. Like he understands the concept of me leaving in the morning. I'm coming in the afternoon. Um, but these kids who are coming into the country and they're being taken from their from the parents, they didn't get to see that, that other end of it where they get to meet with the parents again. So right. there's most definitely going to be some lasting impact unless something can be done. And there are things that can be done. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of figuring out what and how and, and then actually following through and doing that. Yeah. Well, we've been speaking today with... Rabbi Baruch Debrau. Uh, Rabbi, thank you again for your time. Thank you for talking about this critical um, current issue, and I appreciate you being with us today. Thank you for having me once again. It was a pleasure and it's great to talk about such topics. All right. Thank you. Everybody stay tuned for more from the Crux Capacitor, and we appreciate you listening. Thanks.